Okay, let's turn, please, to where are we? What epistle? <laughs> Romans. Romans chapter 3. I was expecting an answer. Romans chapter 3, we're going to go over some ground that we've already covered, territory that we've already taken, let's call it that, on Sunday morning's message in which we began a series called The Royal Motif, The Royal Royalty of Christ Motif in Romans. Tonight's message is going to be also introducing a theme or a doctrinal motif called God-approved livingness. Livingness is a word that we don't, it's probably not even in the dictionary. But I think my friend Jürgen Moltmann coined the term. It's not quite life, but it's, a, it's an expression of life in a certain kind of living that we have available to us in Christ Jesus in this present Age, and so we'll call it livingness. God approved livingness. Let's abbreviate it in the same abbreviation as we have for Galatians. Gal. God approved livingness. Romans chapter 3, verse 27, and we're going to make a foray into Romans 4. Let's take a few moments, please, of silent preparation. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity. We pray now that you'll grant us the grace to make the most of it so that we can redeem the time where indeed the days are evil. You've granted us the grace to redeem the time one day at a time. Father, grant us also the wisdom to know what time it is According to Romans 13, knowing the time, that it is high time to awake because the night or the evil age is almost over and the day is at hand, the age that's overtaking the old that was initiated by the event of Christ. So grant us the opportunity now as we present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice for the transformation of our thinking that we may be conformed not to that old and obsolete age, the one passing away, but to the age that has come with the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we may walk in the newness of life to which we have been raised together in Christ Jesus. We ask this and give thanks in his name. Amen. It's good to see our Ohio row there and Florida too, I understand. Sorry we weren't here. I heard you came just the night. Oh, good to have you here. Good to see you. This is a uh, strange crowd. It's Thursday night and so... Now, they're a good phalanx of believers. Now, we're beginning by recovering some territory already taken in three messages, really two messages ago, and that's Romans 3.27. There's a dialogue. There's a dialectic. The dialectic is one of contradictories, not contraries. And we'll explain that again. That's a, it's imperative that we understand that the left flank of Romans chapters 1 through 4 is all about a dialectic, a rhetorical battle between Paul and a teacher 
who has an opposing gospel, and he is part of an opposing mission, missionary enterprise of a legalistic gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, on the other hand, has a law-free gospel of the grace, the unconditional grace of God. Therefore, this dialectic is not one that has a compromise. It's one in which the opponent has to be utterly demolished while the gospel of the grace of God has to be absolutely established. And that's what Paul's doing. So in Romans 3.27, the conversation, really, the rhetorical battle goes on. The teacher makes this question, puts forth this question, where is boasting then? Because in Romans 3.26, we have discovered that God has justified Jesus, none other than Jesus, by means of his faithfulness at the heart of the gospel. And this is a translation I have only recently discovered, Romans chapter 3, verse 26, the last word in the Greek text, Jesus, the final word. He's the first and the last. The one that's justified by God is Jesus. He is the just one. And when he died, he was justified and raised from the dead. When he died, all died. When he was justified, all died were justified. So it's right that the teacher would say, where is boasting then? Paul says, it's shut out completely. Two speakers in one verse. Paul says, shut out completely. Totally eliminated. No ground for compromise here. Boasting, gone. This recovers something that we dealt with at least eight times the theme of Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24 running throughout Romans. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the, the wealthy man boast in his wealth. But if anyone is going to boast, let him boast in me, that they know and understand me, says Yahweh the Lord, the one who exercises mercy and judgment in all the earth and righteousness, which is a saving action of God. So where's boasting then? The teacher's basically saying it's got to be somewhere for humans to boast. And Paul said, no, shut out completely. The teacher then says, by what sort of teaching? Meaning, what kind of law here? Nomos means what kind of authoritative teaching are you basing that on? That's the essence of this. What kind of Torah? Which means here, what kind of teaching? And by what authority, like they asked Jesus, by what authority do you say these things? In John 7, 17, 7, 16, 7, 17. Same thing with Paul. By what authority are you saying, or by what teaching, what kind of law are you saying that boasting is totally eliminated? A teaching about works, he says. Paul answers, no, not at all. Boasting is not shut out by a teaching about works, but by the Torah or the teaching, the authoritative teaching about faithfulness, specifically Messiah's own faithfulness. Going back to 322, going back to 117, going back to the messianic interpretation of Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one is Jesus Christ. So a teaching, which is the Greek word nomos here, which has many meanings. It can be the Mosaic law, the Sinai law, the Sinaitic law, or it can be the Torah, the Old Testament. You have to determine by the context. So a teaching here is nomos. And it's an authoritative teaching. An authoritative teaching about works or deeds done by either Jews in response to Torah in obedience to the commands of Moses or by Gentiles who do works that conform to Torah just by following their conscience. Paul said, what about them in Romans 2, 14 and 15? But a law or a teaching about works 
does not effectively eliminate human boasting. In fact, it accentuates it because one person's works can be greater in number, greater in fame and fortune, greater than another's. The teaching that effectively eliminates boasting by anyone at all is the teaching about Messiah's faithfulness. I call it the Torah of Messiah's fidelity, by which all are justified and given life. We know where that's going, Romans 5.18. The one who is justified lives, and because he lives, you will live also. We know where it's going, justification for all. And so the teaching that effectively eliminates boasting by anyone at all is the teaching about Messiah's faithfulness by which all are justified and given life. Compare that to 1 Corinthians 15.22. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ all are made alive. All will be made alive. The teaching is none other than the gospel of God about his royal son. That's what we're learning in the royal motif. Therefore, boasting is not my right as far as deeds which I have done. Paul later on says in Romans fifteen seventeen, May it never be that I should boast in my missionary accomplishments. I cannot boast in anything except what Christ has accomplished by me and by the preaching. The gospel elicits faith and faithfulness. And so, I may now boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians ten seventeen to 18 says that. That's the verse which I came to Pittsburgh on, riding on that verse quite literally and 40 years ago because I thought how am I going to do this and the Lord just said just don't commend yourself just teach my word because all you're supposed to do is boast in me make your boast in me make your boast in what I've done make your boast in Christ and him crucified he's not approved who commends himself, Paul says, God says through Paul. Boast in me only, he said. So that's what I've been hopefully doing for 40 years, the last 40 years of my life. So I can boast in the Lord by whose faithfulness I have been justified and by whose mercy I have been saved. So can you. The same faithfulness by which all have been justified and the same mercy that saves all. Titus 3.5 in connection with Romans 11.32. Not according to works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And this is the mercy which God intends to show to all and has in Romans 11.32. So what's completely shut out is the kind of boasting that's at the root of group biases that have divided the saints in Rome. That's the occasion of Paul's epistle. Romans isn't a doctrinal thesis written by Paul. He's writing to an emergency there. He's writing to an exigency. He's writing to a divided church with the intention of producing from it a phalanx of unified believers, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, advancing with the gospel, and as we said last night, not intimidated by the many adversaries, but rather intimidating them. Philippians one twenty seven to 28. So what is shut out is the kind of boasting that's at the root of the group biases that have divided the saints into segregated corners from which they only come out to fight at their love feasts. So Romans 3.28, Paul says, For we, that's my associates and I, Paul's law-free mission to the Gentiles. 
we, my associates and I, bank on the fact that a person is justified by a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. That faithfulness is that of Jesus Christ, by which he was justified. Romans 1.17, Romans 3.26. But so were all justified by his faithfulness unto death. Romans 3.29, again, this is covering ground that we've already taken, territory already conquered. Just going over it again so that we can make a launch into Romans 4. Romans chapter 3, verse 29, Paul continues. Now, Paul's talking. The dialectic continues. The martial arts, rhetorical martial arts match continues. Or is God the God only of of the Jews, Paul says? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Now, the dozens and dozens of verses in the Old Testament, which shows that God will reach out and save the nations or the Gentiles, forces this teacher to meekly admit right here, yes, of the Gentiles too. Verse 30, Paul then says, since indeed he is one God. Now he reverts to the most important verse to the Jewish Christian missionary and to all Jews. Deuteronomy 6.4, listen up, O Israel, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. The Lord our God is one Lord. He is one. Paul uses that to say he is one God. He is the one who justifies the circumcision. Please notice these verses because they are the key to the interpretation of Romans 4. He justifies the circumcision. That's Jews under the law. From the source of faithfulness. Again, the context demands from the source of Messiah's faithfulness. He, God, the one God of Jews and Gentiles alike, justifies, sets right, rectifies both the circumcision, Jews under the law, from the source of Messiah's faithfulness and the uncircumcised Gentiles without the law through the same aforementioned faithfulness. That's my translation, giving the sense from the Greek text. Messiah's faithfulness. Here's an echo of Paul's straightforward argument that begins in 117. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, by it, the righteousness of God, God's rectifying act in Christ is apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. Same thing here, from faithfulness to faithfulness. The same faithfulness, Messiah's faithfulness, because it goes on to say, quoting Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17b, as the scripture says, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live because of his faithfulness or by means of his faithfulness. It's Messiah's faithfulness in both cases. And so here we have just a repeat of it. 3.30, the same God, God of Jews and Gentiles, justifies the Jews by faithfulness. That is Messiah's faithfulness. He's still talking about the authoritative teaching of Messiah's faithfulness. And the Gentiles by the same aforementioned faithfulness. What's he doing here? He's tearing down the walls between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The Jewish ones thinking they did something like obeyed the law to get in and stay in. And the Gentiles thinking God's done with the Jews. And Paul blasts both walls down. So the teacher says, so then... And this is the big charge against Paul, besides his gospel being a license to sin that we've already blown out of the water in Romans 3.8 with Romans 6, 1 through 23, which we dealt with 
recently. Now, the second charge is Paul's destroying the law. His gospel is destroying the law of Moses. And so the teacher thinks he's got him here and says, So then, do we abolish the law now, Torah, the Old Testament? Call it useless like Marcion did. Marcion was the one who collected Paul's epistles and said the Old Testament isn't necessary anymore. That's not what Paul taught at all. He says, so we abolish the law through this justifying messianic faithfulness. Are we going to destroy Torah now? Paul says, of course not. We make the Torah stand tall. In other words, this authoritative teaching of Messiah's fidelity is what the Torah has always been about from the beginning. Ought not Christ, the Messiah, to suffer to enter into his glory, Jesus said to the slow-witted disciples? And he went through all the scriptures, beginning with Moses, through the Psalms, through the Torah, through the prophets, the writings, the Samuels, the Chronicles, the Kings, And he said, these are those things that testify about me, the Messiah. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We make the Torah, the Old Testament, stand tall because now it gets to stand up and say, I'm all about a testimony of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. That's what the law is all about. The gospel of God about his son, says Romans 1-2, is written in the prophets. So Paul slam dunks it here. Of course not. We make the Torah stand tall. That is, as a testimony of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ's justifying faithfulness. That's what the whole Torah was saying all along from Genesis 1-1 through Malachi 4. Now, I said all that. That's ground we've conquered already. Ground Paul's conquered already. Romans 3.31, but now, is a launching pad... To Romans 4. This is a chapter I've been preparing for for two and a half years, Romans 4, because it's a toughie. Because there, the Torah that Paul's talking about and that the teacher's talking about, meaning in this case, the whole Old Testament, regarding Abraham, the Abrahamic narrative comes up now. The teacher really brings it up, but Paul's ready for it. And also, we find in Romans 4, 6 through 8, David joins in and corroborates the statement about God's grace from Psalm 32, 1 to 2 in in Romans 4, 6 through 8. But we're only going to get the first three verses tonight. Paul is going to show that the Abrahamic narrative, the narrative about Abraham, especially from chapters 12 to 22... Of Genesis. This is an exegesis of Genesis 12 to 22, what we call the Abrahamic narrative. And what this shows is that the Abrahamic narrative also testifies of Messiah Jesus justifying faithfulness. But it also testifies to faithfulness kindled by God in God's people, like Abraham, as a divinely approved livingness for the justified. Not faith as the means of justification. The death of Christ did that. Being justified by his blood. How much more being justified by his blood will we be saved from wrath through him? Romans 5, 9. It's his death. If I'm justified by works, Paul said, then Christ has died for nothing in Galatians 2, 20 to 21. What is he talking about here? He's making a distinction. He's making the opposition not between justification by works versus justification by faith. But the issue is justification by works versus justification by Christ's death, which was the climax of his faithfulness 
He was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. And so what I'm proposing here is that Romans 4 is all about a divinely approved livingness, a divinely approved expression of life, which is faithfulness on the part of God's people, a participation in Messiah's faithfulness, not faith as the reason or the means of justification. Now, I'm introducing this tonight. Romans 4, the dialectic continues. The teacher's still arguing. The teacher says, and this leads into it, well then, if the Torah stands tall as a testimony of Messiah's fidelity, you see, we can put chapters and verses in there, but this is still continuing, 331. He's going on the basis of that reasoning. If the Torah is now standing tall as a testimony of Messiah's faithfulness, then what shall we say about what Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has obtained? Here we have the word herisko, H-E-U-R-I-S-K-O, herisko. And herisko, well, there's the famous eureka comes from that. Generally, it means to discover, I found it, or I obtained it. But in this case, it means to obtain. What has Abraham obtained? That's the sense of the verb herisco in Luke one thirty, in 2 Timothy 2.18, in Hebrews 4.16 and 9.12. I'm just trying to tell you that the word obtained is as good as the word discovered. The teacher then asks... Then what shall we say about what Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has obtained? You know know where he's aiming? He's aiming at Genesis 17 when Abraham was circumcised and circumcised all the males in his house. And this teacher wants to say that Abrahamic part of the narrative is going to say that Abraham was justified by works. Now, here's a shocker for you. James, the book of largely reflects this Jewish Christian view, not Paul's. You need the discernment of spirits even in the scriptures. Just thought I'd drop that bomb. Why not? But there's also a sense where James doesn't knock down justification by faith to promote justification by works. Really, he's knocking them both out of the park because It's a justification by the faithfulness of his brother, Jesus. That's the second bomb. Now, let's go back to Romans 4. He goes on to say, For since Abraham was justified by works, he's going to say, he's going to give Genesis 17 as his answer. Paul already sees this coming. It looks like he's winning now. He he's finally thinks he's got the final pivot here. For since Abraham was justified by works, and he's going to show it, he has something to boast about. There's boasting. He has something to boast about. Abraham does, our forefather, and he's our father according to the flesh. So we also have something to boast about. But you know the translation It's misleading. Almost every English translation is misleading in this. The teacher here is ready to argue that Abraham was justified by circumcision, as seems to be the case from Genesis 17. But Paul says this in the second part of 2. But this is not how God sees it. Not before God, he says. It's better, Paul is saying, but this isn't how God sees it. Meaning now... The way you see it, teacher, justification by works, is entirely opposed to how God sees it. He's back to how God sees things. Because when God sees things, he looks out upon the whole human race, all of human beings in all of their times. Remember Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm 53, 1 to 3, cited in Romans 3, 10 and following. They have all together as one 
turned aside. There's none righteous, not even one. Not one understands. So, this isn't how God sees it. We must remember what's going on again. And I can't emphasize this enough. In Romans 118 to 331, and this is, the, this is the trail that I'm blazing. I didn't get this from other scholars. I got help from a lot of them. It's a dialectic of contradictories. And that means a rhetorical battle that has to be distinguished from what we call a dialectic of contraries. I spent a couple years reading Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia to find out what a, doc, what a dialectic of contraries was. He would make a point, a student would make a contrast, and then he'd come up with a middle term. There's a compromise ground that he can find, and that is a dialectic of contraries. There's a compromise, there's a middle term, there's a reconciliation of the two somewhere. And he was a genius at that, in that method. But a dialectic of contradictories, by definition, is the opposite. There is no middle ground. There's no quarter given to the opponent. There is no compromise. The ultimate end has to be the total demolition of one side and the total establishment of the other. And that's what this is. This is a life and death battle between two missionary enterprises to the Gentiles. One is a law imposition on the Gentiles that says, yes, Christ came. That's the the danger of the whole thing. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he died. And yes, he rose from the dead. And what that did for you Gentiles is open the way for you to enter into the covenant that we're already in through circumcision of the males and through the males and females observing Moses' law. And that's the opposite of what Paul is teaching. Two contraries, on one hand, can be reconciled by a third or a middle term. Two contradictories, rhetorically speaking, can never be reconciled. The solution is not found in this kind of dialectic in Romans 1 through 4 by compromise, but by one side being established, Paul's gospel of unconditional grace and God's righteousness demonstrated in Messiah's faithfulness being established, and the other side being totally demolished. And there's no middle ground where we're justified by the human act of believing either. I can't emphasize that enough because that is one of the most profound truths that needs to be established for our time to promote unity in the church. The hopeful outcome of this dialectic is not a compromise but a conversion of the opposing party. Paul's not trying to demolish this guy, although he's trying to demolish his gospel. He wants this man to be converted. So you don't win a dialectic by destroying your opponent, but by converting him to your point of view. That's like God. He destroys his enemies by reconciling them to himself turning them into allies and friends. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, he says in 45.22 of Isaiah. But then he assures that everyone will in Isaiah 45.23. I swear, God says, I am telling you that every knee will genuflect to me and every tongue pledge its allegiance to me. Everyone will be saved, converted. So what we have in Romans 1 to 4, taking up the vast geography of the left flank of Romans, is a dialectic of contradictories where the gospel of God's unconditional grace is fully established. And the gospel of justification, rectification by the works of the law or by human works is utterly demolished. There's no middle ground. Paul gives no quarter to his opponent. 
The weapons of his rhetorical warfare are powerful through God for the demolition of this high thing, this high fortress of human boasting, this idolatrous gospel, for that's what it ultimately is, is an idolatrous, idolatrous gospel on a high place. It's a gospel so-called, but not a gospel indeed, and it allows for human boasting because it does not recognize that the act of rectification of all things is God's act, not man's. And man doesn't even cooperate with God for it. It's not by it's not saved by grace through your faith. It's saved by grace through faithfulness that's not of yourselves. And then God graciously elicits in the justified person a faithfulness which becomes a divinely approved livingness. That's what it's all about. A kind of livingness that has already an experience of the life of the age that's come in Christ, that's coming in its fullness in bodily resurrection, that can be experienced in a very substantial and meaningful measure right now. Better than now, and not yet, is even now, but then completely, as we've seen. Now, very important, very important, in contradiction to the traditional interpretation of Romans 4, Paul is not presenting a case for justification by the human act of believing or making a case for human faith against human works. That's the controversy of our times. needs to be settled. I'm not moving on this one. This is where I stand. And so... What I'd like to do with this is propose that God, that Paul is arguing for this shocking phrase, the justification of the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. That's where we're headed. Paul is arguing for the justification of of the ungodly as an act of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ of the royal line of David. But in addition to this, I'd also like to propose to you in anticipation of Romans 6 through 8, that Paul is also unveiling in Romans 4 that which we may call a God-approved livingness. I've been asked more than once, well, what about now? We know this universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, but what about now? What do we do? How do we live then? This is how. Paul is also unveiling that which we may call a God-approved livingness, same as the abbreviation for Galatians, G-A-L. Simply meaning that which God considers to be rectitude or righteousness. And that it's described by a correlation or a conflation of Romans 6, 4 and 6 and 7, 6. Conflating or blending Romans 6, 4 and 7, 6, we can define this life, which I've previously referred to and still do, as a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It is walking in the newness of life, which is a new kind of livingness in Romans 6, 4, 
to which we were raised up together from death with Christ. And it also includes a service to God and to others in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. That's a combination or a conflation of Romans 6, 4, and 7, 6. Another way of describing this divinely approved livingness. Call it a lifestyle if you want, but livingness is better. It's participation in the fidelity of Jesus through the Spirit of Christ. It is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, Romans 1.5, to which the nations are being brought and will all be brought ultimately. But Paul said he was called and limited to the task of proclaiming the gospel in order to bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations, Romans 1.5. That obedience of faith is a God-approved livingness. to be brought through the gospel that Paul was limited to the task of proclaiming. In this connection, the fact that God considers Abraham's faith to be rectitude. I'm using that word on purpose. Rectitude. There's rectification, the act of God in setting someone right. There is rectitude, which is a divinely approved livingness lived by the rectified or the justified person through the Holy Spirit. So once I saw the superficial surface reading of Genesis 15, 6 as affirming the doctrine of a justification by faith because God justified Abraham when he believed. I saw that once, but that's a superficial reading. The reality is that when God considers Abraham's faith to be rectitude, as he quotes Genesis 15, 6, that's not an argument for justification by the human act of believing over against justification by works of the law. It is part of the Abrahamic narrative that shows that before his circumcision in Genesis 17, God already approved of his livingness in Genesis 15, 6. So before Abraham was circumcised, God recognized and considered to be divinely approved livingness his faithfulness which was brought about by the promise. And not only that, God approved of Abraham's faithfulness in Genesis 22 when Abraham climactically, as an act of obedience of faith, presented his son Isaac on the altar after he was circumcised. What's Paul saying? God approves of a trusting faithfulness that he himself elicits in his people by both in the uncircumcised, which Abraham was when he was recognized to have faith, and the circumcised, which Abraham was also recognized to have a pleasing way of life, not because he was circumcised, but because he lived in an unstaggering fidelity to God. And so Abraham isn't just the father of the Jews, according to the flesh. He's the father of us all as an exemplar of a divinely approved livingness that is circumcision free. So Paul says elsewhere, does he not, in Galatians, Gal, G-A-L, Galatians, what does he say there? Circumcision and uncircumcision, they're nothing. What's something is a faith that works by love, a faith that's been elicited by love, a faithfulness that is elicited by God's Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts. Now, it's going to take a few times hitting this before you get this, I think. That's not your fault. That's, that's the, I won't say it's my fault either. It's just a hard thing to communicate. 
And so I'm going to use another translation in a moment just to show you that I'm not the only one trying to make this point. And so it's part of the Abrahamic narrative that shows that before his circumcision, Abraham was already living a God-approved life before God, in God's eyes, as God sees it. So this teacher's already reeling back and he's saying, wait a minute, you're telling me and it's true. Oh, no, I see it now. God considered Abraham's trusting faithfulness to be rectitude or a divinely approved living. And that happened a long time before he was circumcised. I get it. This teacher gets pretty silent after Romans 4. He comes with a couple more things in Romans 9. And then the justification by faith crowd comes in Romans 10, and we've already kind of obliterated that. But we'll do it again just for... I almost said just for fun, but so it's part of the Abrahamic narrative that Paul shows that before his circumcision, Abraham was already living a God approved life before God, a life or a livingness that was characterized by implicit trust in God and unstaggering fidelity says Romans 421 as an anticipation, and the Abraham's approved livingness is an anticipation of Jesus, who is the author of his faith and the finisher of his faith. It is Romans 4 in the thicker reading, in the less than superficial reading, in the deeper reading, is showing the approved livingness of faithfulness that God creates in the already justified believer. Already justified saint. So, it can't be that he was justified at a point when he believed God because in Genesis 12, he already called Abraham out of his house and Abraham obeyed. He saw Yahweh and he obeyed him. Genesis 12. We have to go back there as well as ahead to Genesis 22. But I think you might get the point a little better if we continue and close with this Next element of the study. Abraham's implicit trust in God and fidelity to the promise in believing the promise is an anticipation of, a foreview of, a forecast of Jesus' unrelenting fidelity that led to his death by crucifixion a death for our transgressions that led to his resurrection. The end of Romans, look at Romans 4.25. He, Jesus, was handed over for our transgressions and raised up, resurrected, because of our justification, meaning he was resurrected from the dead because our justification came about by his death. Now, this will all come into view. Right now, it's a little opaque. It's a little translucent, but it'll go from opaque to translucent to crystal clear, as always. And so his, Abraham's narrative is a depiction of Jesus Christ's faithfulness, whose resurrection from the dead was proof that our justification, that is the justification of the human race, the ungodly for whom Christ died, had occurred in his death. It was accomplished by his death. Read Romans 5, 6 through 10. This is all anticipating. The, the, the arrow goes right to Romans 5, 6. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to him. While we were still sinners... All humankind in all of its times, God demonstrated his love. You see, I haven't mentioned love much, but love's at the base of all this. Love is the whole story. And I've deliberately not mentioned it because I'm going to let it emerge on its own in the scripture. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet active, hostile sinners, Christ died. 
Same in 15 to 19 of Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, 34. So listen to this. And I put this together with the God's Word translation. God's Word translation. It's published by God's Word to the nations. Sometimes they get it better than any other translation. Sometimes the complete Jewish Bible, edited by David Stern, gets it when other translations don't get it. Sometimes David Bentley Hart, a known universalist, his translation of the New Testament gets it when other people don't get it. In this case, the sense is captured, and listen carefully to what Romans 4.3 says. Paul is speaking now. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And that faith was regarded by God to be his approval of Abraham. This perspicuous translation can be compared with that of J. Lewis Martin's rendering of Galatians 3.6, which says, he trusted God, that's Abraham. That's not depicting him as having a creedal assent to a promise, but it's showing that the whole course of the narrative of Abraham's life was characterized by a trusting fidelity that God approved of as the way of living of a justified person. It wasn't his faith that justified him, but God recognized that faith and faithfulness on the part of Abraham and recognized it to be rectitude or the kind of living that God wants people to live. Now, J. Lewis Martin said it this way, capturing the whole Abrahamic narrative, and that's what Genesis 15, 6 does. It's not a point in time when Abraham believed a promise of God and God justified him at that moment. Genesis 15, 6, especially in the Hebrew style of narrative, summarizes the entire experience of Abraham before God so that God recognized his trusting fidelity as a divinely approved livingness. And he does the same with us. So Martin put it this way. He trusted God. And as the final act in the drama by which God set Abraham fully right, God recognized Abraham's faithful trust. God's recognized Abraham's faithful trust. So I've supplied the translation from God's Word translation because I believe it's given the right sense of the verse. God approved of Abraham's faith, or as J. Lewis Martin put it, God recognized his faithful trust. The point that Paul makes is that Abraham's faithful trust in God was approved by God before Abraham's circumcision, which God did command. Genesis 17.10, following. So listen carefully. The point that Paul makes is that Abraham's faithful trust in God was approved by God before, 13 years before his circumcision. Moreover, Abraham's faithful trust which in Galatians 5, 6 is a faith that works by love. Demonstrated and expressed dramatically and climactically in his offering of his son Isaac, who was spared by God. And that's the whole point of Romans eight thirty two, the lamb at the heart of the Roman epistle. God did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over for us all. God is for us in that way. So Abraham's faithful trust demonstrated climactically in his offering of Isaac in Genesis 22 showed that his faithful trust was heartily approved by God after his circumcision. So what's Paul saying? You guys in Rome that are Jewish Christians despising your Gentile brothers You are approved by God in your fidelity. Those who are circumcised or uncircumcised, who despise their Christian brothers and sisters, 
you are justified by the faithfulness of Messiah, by the same. So what have you got to boast about? And if boasting's at the root of your group biases, why do you even have groups anymore? Polarized, fragmented, and fighting with each other. Even over food. If you're going to destroy your brother over food, he said, haven't you ceased walking in love? Romans 14, 15. Consequently, faithful trust is a divinely approved livingness, whether it's exercised by uncircumcised Greeks or circumcised Jews. That's the point Paul's making here. He's still emphasizing, and he does throughout. The question that Douglas Campbell asked is, does this go all the way through Romans and Galatians, where faith that justifies is always Messiah's faithfulness? My answer to that is overwhelmingly, of course it is. Not meganoito, genoito. Just genoito, of course. So in closing, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything then. Circumcision? Yes. What do you think? That's really something? Yes, it's really something. And it distinguishes us from those Gentiles who have to be circumcised, the males, in order to come under the covenant. Paul says circumcision is nothing. The uncircumcision say, yeah, but we're uncircumcised, and that's even better than being circumcised because God's rejected the Jews. He's cast them off. Paul says, has he really? In Romans 11, 1, and all the way through 26, all Israel will be saved. After all the nations come into salvation. And so God has shut up everybody in disobedience or unbelief because the world can't believe the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin because they do not believe in me they cannot believe in me is what Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit has to elicit the faith and so God took the whole human race the circumcised and the uncircumcised put them in one camp and put a plaque over the camp and it said disobedient unbelief And then he drops a bomb on the camp. It's called mercy. He has mercy on all. How can he justify someone who is obedient to believe when he only shows mercy to those that are disobedient and don't believe? What's really something then, if circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing then the whole group biases and the people in Rome are nothing. They're fabricated facades. So Paul says what's really something, and this makes me think I might have to go to Galatians next. I'm fighting between Galatians and Ephesians. So God will probably say do Hebrews or something like that. What is really something is faith working by love. Faith working energized by love. Faith Working by love. That's the divinely approved livingness. That's not the way you're justified. That's divinely approved livingness. Because you've been justified by Messiah's faithfulness. Galatians 5, 5 to 6. And that's energized by the Holy Spirit. So all of this is still with a view to the unification of the polarized camps of saints in Rome, whom Paul hopes, and they will, that they must begin to see themselves altogether as a new creation, altogether as a new creation, altogether as the Israel of God in Christ. And this is the question I'll ask because this goes all the way to Romans 9 to 11. What is Israel? Israel. Quits it. What is Israel? Certainly not a people who have entered the people of God through circumcision and observance of Moses' law. 
But Israel are the people who have died with the Messiah of Israel, who have been buried with him and raised with him and made to sit with him in heavenly spheres. In this regard, Romans 4 presses into Romans 9 to 11, as hopefully we'll see clearly a little down the line. This totally demolishes the whole idea of supersessionism, which means Gentiles took over for the Jews. God rejected the Jews, put in the Gentiles. Supersessionism, a doctrine that led to the Holocaust or helped lead to it. This doctrine is demolished by the right understanding of the Scripture. And so we have a lot to say. The point is, so far, Romans 4, 1 to 3, we're dealing not with justification by faith, human believing, over and against justification by works, but we're dealing with a divinely approved livingness that's had without circumcision or with circumcision because circumcision and uncircumcision don't even count. There goes the walls. They come tumbling down. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you will rivet these things into our hearts so that we will, in fact, have faith elicited in us and hope and that we may overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. And may that hope be not disappointed as the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Amen.